Hello, welcome to TanakhStudy.com. I'm Yael Ziegler, and today we're going to be studying Shemot Perak Bet. Uh, Shemot Perak Bet picks up where we left off at the end of Perak Aleph. Perak Aleph, despite the victory that we talked about last time, in which all of God's designs triumph over those of Paro, it still ends with a sense of abiding danger. At the end of Parak Aleph, if you recall, Paro commanded his people that they should throw all of the male babies into the sea uh, and they should keep all of the female babies alive. Well, Parak Bet actually responds or continues this story. If you recall, uh, Paro had two aspects of his plan to deal with the sense of threat that he felt from the Israelite nation. The first part of his plan was to commit them to slavery, and the second part of his plan involved killing all of the male babies. Well, when we look at Perak Bet, we see that Perak Bet actually very neatly addresses each of these aspects or each of these plans of Paro in the first part of the Perak, from Pasuk Aleph all the way through Pasuk Kafet, we have the story of how one family remains determined to keep uh, bringing life into the world and, um, and, and not only gives birth to this child, but of course uh, keeps this child alive and ensures that this child ultimately, of course we're talking about Moshe, will become the savior of the Jewish people. In Psukim Kaf Gimel through Kaf Hay, at the very end of the chapter, the last three Psukim of the chapter, we see Am Yisrael's response to slavery, we see how their desperation causes them to cry out to God, the desperation as part of slavery. So Perakbet really shows us the reaction of the Jewish people to the two aspects of Paro's plan that we see him implement in Perakal. Today's class, we're going to be looking at the first part of this chapter, which is really most of the chapter, uh, and we're only going to be examining the part in which we see Amisar crying out from the slavery at the beginning of our next class. The first part of this chapter really revolves around Moshe, but it can be pretty easily divided, or really very easily divided into two parts. The first part is from Pasuk Aleph through Pasuk Yud. It is about uh, the birth of a child. The key word in this first section is Ha Yeled, the baby. And of course, we're talking about the baby Moshe. Moshe is a passive actor. He is a passive figure in this section. Starting in Pasuk Yud Aleph, we begin with the words, Moshe, right? So that Moshe is growing up. Um, and of course, at this point, uh, we have Moshe is active. And that takes us through to the end of that second section. And actually what we see is, is that the key word in this section, in the second section of the chapter, is not Hayelet, it's not the child, but rather Ish. And that is, of course, the adult. And what we're going to see in the next section is that the word Ish doesn't necessarily refer uh, exclusively to Moshe, perhaps not even primarily to Moshe. But we do have the story of Moshe becoming a person, becoming an adult. And in doing so, he seeks out the company and the role modeling of other adults. So we'll be talking about that when we get to the second half of the chapter. For the moment, I want to look at the beginning of this chapter where we have the story of Moshe, the passive child, the passive baby. And he, of course, is acted upon by others in order to ensure that he will survive. And of course, there's a death threat which is revolving around his possibility of survival, as we saw at the end of last week's, at the end of, of, of chapter one. Okay, so let's look in Pasuka Aleph. We have the marriage between this anonymous man from the house of Levi who takes this woman, this daughter of Levi. What we're going to see in a few minutes is that 
pretty much everybody in this section is anonymous. That links up to some of the ideas that we that we uh, raised in in chapter one, but we'll see it even more so in this chapter. So we have this anonymous man who takes this anonymous woman, Batara Isha Ben, and the woman conceives and she gives birth to a son. That, of course, is not very good news because we know what the Egyptians are doing with these Jewish sons, with these Israelite sons. But Tero Toki Tofu, and she saw that he was good, and she hid him for three months. So perhaps the most curious part of this pasuk is this woman who gives birth and she looks at her child and she sees that he's good. Uh, that's a very peculiar sort of description. Doesn't every mother, when she looks at a newborn child, see that he's good, assuming that the child is healthy? Well, there are different various explanations as to what this means. I'll perhaps just offer two of them. One is the Shadal, who uh, suggests that what Tov here means is placid, namely easily hidden. She sees that this child is not a crying child, is not a child that necessarily will give her away, and therefore she decides that she is going to make the effort to hide him. Uh, that's one possible reading. And another reading, which I think is perhaps better known, is the one that we find in the Midrash, and Rashi men mentions this Midrash, and that is that Kitov uh, suggests that when he's born, she sees something special. Right? So the Midrash uh, brings up several possibilities. She sees that he's born circumcised. This indicates to her that this is a child uh, who is designated perhaps for some sort of spiritual greatness. But the better known explanation is the one that, the, that Rashi brings, which is that uh, Kitovu suggests that when he's born, the house fills with light. Now, what's interesting about this particular reading is that it, it, it suggests to us what I think is really true, which is that um, this she sees him that he is good. Kitovu recalls the very, very beginning of Bereshit in which God sees the light that he created and it is good, right? And so that Midrash, along with Rashi, is trying to connect this story of the birth of the Savior of Am Yisrael to the story of creation, which indicates, as we said in the first chapter, that in fact what we have here at the beginning of the book of Shemot is a new creation. The first creation has failed to yield fruit, has failed to produce that which God had hoped that it would produce, and therefore we begin Sefer Shemot with a sort of a sense that the world has to be recreated in order to function properly. Um, in any case, what we see in Pasuk Gimel is, After three months, she could no longer hide him. And she takes for him this basket that is made out of bulrushes, bulrushes some sort of reeds. And she cocks the basket with some sort of tar and um and and pitch and she places the child in this teva and she places it in the reeds on the bank of the river i think one of the uh one of the the mistakes that people make is people think and they assume and of course this is supported in the disney movie the prince of egypt is that she puts this child on the river where he floats down sort of unhampered. But that's, of course, not what it says here in the Pasuk. She puts him in the reed. She puts him in a place where that ark was not going to move anywhere. And, of course, in a moment, we're going to see, if you look in Pasuk Dalavit, right? So she places there his sister 
from a distance to see, to know what is going to happen to him, right? So she is certainly not um, uh, sending her son down the river, but instead she is very carefully making from this basket. She's being very protective of him. A tremendous amount of detail is given here. What we see here is the careful and calculated plan in order to protect her child. And of course, she also places her uh, the, the child's sister in order to make sure that she knows what what is going to happen to the child. Uh, one point that I will make about the Teva is that, of course, it recalls the other Teva in Tanakh, and that is, of course, the Ark that Noah builds in order to save himself, in order to save himself and his family and the animals uh, from the flood. And of course, this suggests as well that Moshe's fate, like Noah, is in the hands of God, right? Of course, a teva, some sort of ark, it has no oars, it has no rudder, it simply is, um, is, is uh, subject to the elements. And here, what we have a sense of is, is that God is going to determine what's going to, what's going to happen to the child. Well, let's look at what happens starting in Pasuke. The Tered bat paro lechos al hayor, and the daughter of paro goes down in order to wash herself at the Nile, v'narotel chot al yad hayor, and her women, her young maidens, were walking next to the Nile. And they see this teva, they see this basket that is in the reeds. And she sent her maidservant and she took it. I, I want to point out two very, I think, significant things. One is that I want you to note how slow the narrative is. The Tanakh knows how to skip over tens of years, even hundreds of years in a pasuk, it knows how to skip over months. If you look at the first two psukim of our of our parak, you see that the span of marriage, conception, and birthing a child takes place in less than two psukim. And here we have these minutes that go by in what I would call an agonizingly slow way. What we feel is the tension rising. That leads me to my second point, which is that, of course, the minute that Bat Paro enters into the scene, we have a sense of the encroaching danger. Bat Paro, of course, is the daughter of Paro. She's the daughter of the evil tyrant who issued the decree. And we have very little doubt as to what's going to happen when she finds an Israelite baby who has been left out there in the in the Nile, uh, in the reeds on the Nile. Of course, she's going to do exactly what her father had commanded the entire nation to do, and that is, of course, throw him into the Nile. Um, what we get a sense of here throughout the story is this encroaching sense of danger as the child gets farther and farther away from the safety of his mother's womb. He emerges from the womb. He stays close to her for three months. She then places him a little farther away from him. He then is only protected by his sister. At this point, Bat Paro comes into the scene, and this is really the nexus of the story. This is the focal point of the story. What we're going to see is, is that this first section of the story is described in a chiastic structure, chiastic structure being A-B-B-A. The chiasm in this section is indicated by the identity of the characters who appear, so that first we have the mother, then we have the sister. At, as I said, at the center, we have the daughter of Paro. We're then going to return to the sister, and finally we're going to end with the mother. All this really indicates to us that the turning point of the story, the axis upon which the story turns, is this moment when we encounter Bat Paro. And of course, as we've noted, the tension builds up to this moment, 
she sends her maidservant, she takes the basket, and in Pasuk Vav we have Vatiftach, Vatirehu et Hayeled. She opens it and she sees him, the child. Look at how the form of that verb, Vatirehu, already contains the subject, and then the Pasuk repeats et Hayeled. She sees the child. Vihinein Naar Boche. And it is a boy who is crying. And she has compassion over him. And she says, lest we think that she doesn't know with whom she's dealing, this is from the children of the Israelites, of, of the Ivrim. Should I go and call you a woman who is a nursemaid? From the Ivriot, Vatenik Lach et Hayeled, and she can nurse for you the child, Vatomer La Bat Paro Lechi, and Bat Paro says to her, Go, Vatelech Alma, Vatikra et Im Hayeled. And the young maiden goes and she calls the mother of the child. And so we've come back to the mother, we've come full circle back to the mother. The mother is now going to once again take possession of the child, but of course not full possession. In a moment, we're going to talk about what seems to have motivated Bat Paro. And Bat Paro says to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And the woman takes the boy and she nurses him. And the boy grows up, and she brings him to the daughter of Paro, and she becomes for him a son, and she calls his name Moshe, and she says, for I have drawn him from the water. Now, the, the um, significant question that I want to address before I actually explain these last psukim is the question of really what motivates but Paro, of course, what's interesting throughout this entire section is that pretty much we have two um, mother, two maternal figures. We have two wombs, right? We have the uh, the actual physical biological womb of the biological mother, but we also have this womb-like contraction, which is the basket. Uh, both of these mothers draw the child out of the womb, or the, the child comes out of the womb, and the mother sees the child, right? In Pasukubet, it was the biological mother, Vateroto, and she sees him. And of course, in Pasukvav, it's the Egyptian daughter of Parova, Tirehu Etayeled. She sees the child, and of course, this motivates both of the women to take pains to save the child's life. What's important, I think, about the act of, of the daughter of Paro is that she's simply motivated by compassion, right? The turning point of the story, and the story really is uh, the entire section from uh, Pasuk Alf through Pasuk Yud is a very neat section uh, in terms of its symmetry and even in terms of its uh, amount of words. There are 70 words on one side of the story and 70 words on the other side of the story, and the middle word is the word Hayeled, when she sees the child, that's the turning point when she sees this child and it evokes in her compassion. And so once again, we come back to what we said about the Mialdot, right? Those midwives who may or may not have been Israelite. They may have been Egyptian. They are motivated 
by this experience of bringing life into the world. And what we see in this section as well is that what motivates people in the section to defy evil decree of Paro to risk their lives to defy Paro and even his own daughter to defy him is a sense of compassion at encountering a child. And it's very similar to what we saw with the Mialdot. Now, what's interesting, I mentioned before that there seemed to be two mothers, perhaps also two births. What happens in Pasuk Bav is she opens this this, this basket, which I noted is somewhat womb-like, and she sees a child, and it is a crying child, right? The first experience of childbirth is that experience of sound, that oral experience of the child crying. And when she experiences this, her compassion is aroused, and she's willing even to defy her father. And so what I think is perhaps most significant here, well, perhaps two points are very significant. One is that Moshe is born to two mothers with two very different ethnic identities, uh, an Israelite mother and an Egyptian mother. That's going to pretty much uh, accompany Moshe throughout his life, and we'll talk about that especially in the second half of this chapter. But the other point that I want to make is, is that it's women who save Moshe. Moshe is the product of these women, of these maternal figures who are motivated by their determination to maintain life, even as death swirls all around. Um, what I think is perhaps very significant in this section of the story is that, you know, we have the daughter of Paro acting to bring life, even as Paro in the background, we hear echoes of his decree to bring death. But even the father of Moshe is not present, right? The story opens with a mother and a father, with a husband and a wife, and Amram, we're only going to see his name later on, disappears from the story. This, of course, generates, it produces a certain amount of criticism in the Midrashim, which I'm not going to talk about right now, but I do think it's important that this story focuses on the determination of women, which, as I said, of course, reminds us of the midwives. And the last point that I want to make in this first section before we move on to the next section is that in Pasuk Yud, when the child is brought back to Paro, right, and he becomes for her as a son, we're told, she calls his name Moshe, and she says, for I have drawn him from the water. So the major question, the major exegetical question that arises here is, who calls his name Moshe? Right. So on the one hand, the subject of the of the last verb was really the tiviehu, right? That she brought in the mat. The subject there was Yocheved. But then the subject of 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 Vahila Leven was in fact Bat Paro. And so it's really not clear who names Moshe Moshe. There's a tremendous discussion about this uh, among the biblical interpreters. What I think perhaps is most significant, of course, is that it's deliberately ambiguous. It's not clear who gives Moshe the name. It's also not clear if it's the same person who gives Moshe the name and also gives him the name etymology. So on the one hand, we have this Egyptian name. The name Moshe is an Egyptian name. On the other hand, we have an etymology, Kimin Hamai Mishitiu, for I have drawn him from the water, which seems to be a, a, a Hebrew etymology. Some might say that this is certainly Bat Paro because she is the one who drew him from the water. But again, I'll recall the suggestion that the drawing from the water is some sort of description of birth. 
in any case, I think it's, it's reasonable to say that what we have here is a magnificent ambiguity in the text itself, which only really leads us to conclude that, which we've pretty much already concluded, which is that Moshe is an amalgamation of these two ethnic identities born of two mothers who are both uh, go out of their way to save him and, of course, therefore named by two mothers. Now, the one who names a child in Tanakh is the one who determines the child's destiny. And so what I'm going to suggest here is, is that both his biological mother and Bat Paro's adopted mother are going to give Moshe his identity. And we're going to see that in a few moments. Now, let's turn to uh, who Moshe is when we meet him already as a burgeoning young adult. That's Pasuk Yud Aleph. Perak uh, uh, Bet Pasuk Yud uh, began with the words Vaigdal Hayeled, and only towards the end of that Pasuk is that child named. I think it's significant that in this chapter, the first one that gets a name is Moshe. He is the first uh, Israelite in the story who is not born into the condition of slavery, but we'll note that it's not just the Israelites who do not have names. Even the daughter of Paro doesn't have names. I think this might indicate the condition of ancient Egypt in which there really was only one named figure or one important figure in society. Everybody else was crushed under the identity of that figure, and that's, of course, Paro. Now, this a little bit contradicts what I mentioned last time, that Paro doesn't get a name, but I think that's a deliberate literary um, artifice on the part of the text in order to pretty much erase Paro's name. That's what that's what the, the Sefer Shemot does. In any case, though, Moshe is not born into the condition of slavery, and perhaps first and foremost because he is seen by others. These two women see him, and they determine that they are going to save him. And so he has a name. He has an identity. He is born into a sense of self, into an I. Well, in Pasuk Yud Aleph, we pick up on this Vayigdal Hayelet, and we're told Vayigdal Moshe. It was in those days, and Moshe grew up and he goes out to his brethren, and he sees their suffering. And he sees an Egyptian man who is hitting an Israelite man, an Ivri man, from his brethren. Now, um, the real question in this pasuk, or real question in terms of what we know about the background of Moshe, which I think is somewhat answered by this pasuk, is the question of Moshe's own sense of identity. Of course, he grew up in the Egyptian palace. He presumably has not seen his biological mother since he was weaned. It's doubtful whether or not he even remembers her. And therefore, it's very significant that at the beginning of his adult life, the first thing that he does is he goes out to his brothers, he sees their burdens. Now, um, Moshe here receives great accolades from the different midrashim, from the different biblical interpreters, all of whom really praise him for maintaining the sense of identity with his brethren. And of course, then he goes out and he sees this Egyptian man who is smiting an Israelite man, and that's going to cause him to act, as we know, and what's going to happen in the next few psukim. But I just want to raise another possible reading, which is really raised by the Ibn Ezra. It causes great waves among the super commentaries on Ibn Ezra, who are actually somewhat disturbed by this reading. I think it's a magnificent reading. The Ibn Ezra suggests that the word echav, which appears twice in Pasuk Yud Alf, actually refers to two different groups. He suggests that the first echav, I'd say el echav, 
actually refers to um, Moshe's Egyptian brethren. And when Moshe initially leaves the palace, he goes out to join the group of people with whom he most identifies, and that is the group of people that he grew up with, and that's his Egyptian brethren. Vayar besid lotam does not mean he sees their burdens, but rather he sees the burdens that they're actively putting on others. In other words, sivlot mitzrayim, the burdens that Mitzrayim impose on the Israelites. And then he sees an Ish Mitzri, an Egyptian man, who is smiting in an Ivri man from his brothers. And what Ibn Ezra suggests is that the second usage of brothers is, in fact, his Israelite brothers, and that Moshe, right in the middle of the verse, switches alliances. I think this is very indicative of who Moshe is, who does Moshe identify with, how does Moshe choose between his different ethnic identities? I think the answer is, is Moshe identifies with the moral, with the good. And what he first encounters when he goes out into the street is an immoral Egyptian. And so he, in, in mid-verse, in the middle of, of his actions, he switches allegiance and he identifies with his Israelite brethren. Let's look at the next pasuk. Even if you don't accept the Ibn Ezra, it's really a magnificent reading. It's very subtle, and I think it's very rich. And it certainly seems to um, uh, seems to um, uh, pick up on the point that we were making about the, ambigu the ambiguity of Moshe's ethnic identity. Okay, let's look in pasuk Yudbet. And he turned this way and that way. He sees that there's no man. And he smites the Egyptian and he covers him in the sand. Uh, here, of course, we have the word Ish appears in the last few psukim three times. It's never talking about Moshe. He's seeing an Egyptian man. He's seeing an Israelite man. He's seeing no man. And so he has to take matters into his own hands and he kills this Egyptian. He cannot abide this kind of Injustice, this kind of immoral behavior. And he goes out on the second day. These two Ivri men are fighting. And he said to the evil one, right? It's a second incident. Moshe goes out on the next day. Some of the Farshim say it wasn't necessarily the next day, but it was the next time that he went out. And this time he sees Jews who are not behaving well to one another, these two Ivrim who are fighting. And he says to the, the, the evil one, presumably the one who has raised his hand, why are you hitting your friend? And the response of this Ivri is, Who made you a man who is uh, uh, an officer and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Moshe. Moshe becomes very afraid. And he says, behold, this thing is known. He understands that people know what he has done. And he realizes that his life is in danger because he saved this Ivri from a Mitzri. And in fact, Paro does hear this thing. And he wants to kill Moshe. Moshe runs away from Paro and he sits in or he dwells in the land of Midian and he sits at the Be'er, at the well. Now, um, at the well, of course, this seems to be the center meeting point in town. We're going to have a third incident 
in which Moshe is going to get involved in a situation that's really not very much his his situation. It's really not his own business, but he is going to get involved in order once again to save the weak from the strong, to save uh, the 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 helpless from a situation which Moshe thinks is not just, is not righteous, uh, an immoral act. Let's see what happens in Pasuk Tezayin. Ulechohen Midian Sheva Banot. And the priest of Midian had seven daughters, Vatavona, Vatidlena, Vatimalena, Etarahatim, and they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs, Lahashkot, Son Avihen, to water the flocks of their father. Vayavoharoim, and the shepherds came, Vayagarashun, and they expelled them. Here, presumably, it means the flocks of sheep. They pushed them away. They were going to steal the labor of the girls and actually water their own flocks at the troughs that the that the young women had already filled with water. This is, of course, a laborious process, uh, drawing water from the well. Vayakom Moshe Vayoshian, and Moshe gets up and he says them, Vayashk et Sonam, and he waters their flocks. Now, of course, this is the third time, as I've said, that Moshe gets involved in this situation in which he's saving someone from an oppressor. But we should note the ethnic identities of those involved in each of the three incidents. This is something that is noted by the Barbanel, and it becomes the subject of one of Achad Ha'am's essays. It's a very famous idea, and that is that the first three incidents in which we encounter Moshe, Moshe is saving different people. First, he saves an an Ivri from a Mitzri, then he saves an Ivri from an Ivri, and then he saves saves a non-Jew or a non-Israelite from a non-Israelite, and so what we have here is an equal opportunity savior. Moshe is saving the weak, and he's not concerned with their ethnic identity. That, of course, is going to lead us to the role of Moshe as the universal uh, lawgiver, the universal arbiter of justice. Let's look at what happens when these young women come home. Tavona el Ru'el Abihem, and they come to Ru'el, their father, Vayomer, and he says to them, Madua miharten bohayom. Why, how did you get home so quickly today? Of course, this seems to be a daily occurrence. Every day they're getting home is delayed by these shepherds who have stolen their labor. But Tomarna, and they respond, Ish mitzri hitzilan in yad haroim. An Egyptian man has saved us from the hands of the shepherds. The gum dalo dalalanu. And he also drew water for us, Vayashk etatzon, and he watered the flocks. What's, I think, very interesting about this pasuk is that they refer to Moshe as an ish mitzri. Uh, some of the Midrashim are very concerned about this, about the fact that Moshe and his outward appearance looks like an Egyptian man. I think this suggests to us once again that Moshe, who can be identified externally as an Egyptian, whether because of his clothes or because of his haircut or because of his language, the, the, the pasuk here seems to be indicating to us that Moshe ethnically looks and seems externally like an Egyptian. Once again, we have a sense that Moshe is rising above his ethnic identity, and instead of being Egyptian or Israelite, he is man of justice, universal man of justice. In this initial story, Moshe doesn't mention God. He hasn't yet encountered God. His sole motivation is justice. Let's look at what Reuel says to his daughters. It sounds a little bit like a rebuke. Vayomer el benotav, and he says to his daughters in Pasukkaf, Ve'ayo, and where is he? Why did you leave the man? Kir'en lo v'yochal lachem. Call him 
and he will eat bread. Reuel is very impressed by the tale, by the account of this young man who has gone out of his way to save these girls from the oppressions, from the daily oppressions of the shepherds. Presumably nobody has saved them before. He's very impressed. He wants Moshe to come home. He wants to create some sort of relationship with him. And that's, of course, the eating of bread together, which oftentimes indicates the forging of a covenant. And Moshe took an oath to stay with the man. And he, meaning Reuel, gave Tzipora his daughter to Moshe. And she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, Kiamar, Ger Haiti Be'eretz Nochria. Because he said, of course, here we're talking about Moshe, I was a stranger in a foreign land. Now, what's, what's ambiguous here is which land he's talking about. Is he talking about the land of Midian? Is he talking that he feels foreign there? Is he talking about his previous experience in Egypt? In any case, the story ends with the birth of a child. Again, the story begins with the birth of a child. It ends with the birth of a child. The birth of a child is not simple in this world in which evil seems to swirl all around, in which dangers are prevalent, in which immorality seems to reign. But what we have here, I think, is already the beginning of the solution. The solution is a man who refuses to be sidelined, he refuses to watch as immorality continues to prevail, and instead he jumps in to save from immorality. I'm going to conclude with one final point. I mentioned that the first section of this chapter uh, revolves around the keyword hayeled, um, and the second part of the chapter revolves around the keyword ish. But I also mentioned that the word ish does not appear primarily to describe Moshe. In fact, it's not Moshe who has become an ish, but it is Moshe in search of an ish. He is looking for a, a man, for someone who he can model himself after. He's looking for a role model, a human being, a person of justice, so that he can become a man of justice. And he doesn't find it in Egypt. And he thinks he's going to find it among the Ivrim, among his fellow Israelites, but he doesn't find it among them either. Where eventually does he find the Ish? He seems to find the Ish with Reuel. Vayoel Moshe Shevet et Ha'ish. And Reuel finds it in him. Lama ze azavten et ha'ish, Reuel says. And this forges the great partnership of Moshe and Reuel, or Moshe and Yitro. For the moment, I'm not going to get into the question of the nature of the relationship between Reuel and Yitro. Are they the same person? Are they father and son? It's, for the moment, it's immaterial. Moshe and the family of Reuel eventually partner together to bring the Chukei Elohim V'Torotav, the rules of God and the instructions of God to the people. Moshe brings the actual words of God, and it is Yitro, of course, who sets up the infrastructure of the, the judiciary so that Moshe will not become exhausted, so that Moshe will properly be able to disseminate God's rule to the world, God's morality to the world. The beginning of that partnership is here, and the story concludes when Moshe settles with this Ish. Now, what we're going to see, of course, is that in the next section, is that that settling is not to God's liking. In other words, God is going to now ask Moshe to take all of this morality and go back in order to help save the people from Egypt. That's what we're going to see in our next parak.